Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about weird words for alcohol and why starting a sentence with the word however requires a little bit of extra care. But first, I want to respond to something someone mentioned about last week's episode on storytelling. In the segment about interviewing, we had an example about someone calling another person in for an interview because they went to the same school or had the same hobbies. Well, it's obvious to me, and I hope it's obvious to all of you, that those aren't good reasons to invite someone to a job interview. It should be about skills, people. Skills. Cheers, everyone. Today, we're going to explain what Dutch courage is and talk about other weird words for alcohol. We'll talk about booze, hooch, and nipperkins, to name a few. Let's start with booze. This word comes from the Middle English baus, meaning an intoxicating drink. A book from the 1500s advises that man should not sink in water but swim in booze. Good point, but that may be a little extreme. Bottle, another word for alcohol, has a dual meaning. Obviously, it can mean a glass container that might hold beer or wine, but it can also refer to the drink itself or the practice of drinking. For example, we can say that someone who's drunk is deep in the bottle or that they like the bottle a little too much. In the same way, juice and sauce, which have neutral meanings, can also be slang words for alcohol. We usually see sauce paired with the, as in, he really likes the sauce. Even the generic word drink often substitutes as a word for alcohol. Has anyone ever asked you to go out for a drink? The implication is that you'd be going out for a beer or cocktail. Interestingly, the meaning of I need a drink depends on context. If you've been outside on a hot day, I need a drink simply means I need a big glass of water. But if you've had a rough day at work or a big fight with your bestie, saying, Ugh, I need a drink, implies that you want a swig of alcohol. On a completely different note, if you talk about the drink, it has nothing to do with beverages at all. The drink is slang for a body of water. For example, you could say someone walking carelessly on a pier accidentally fell into the drink. Now let's talk about hooch. This word has an interesting history. It's a short version of hoochinoo, which is itself an anglicized version of the Tlingit word hootsnuwu. This is the name of a people indigenous to Admiralty Island south of Juneau in Alaska. The literal translation of this word is brown bear fort or grizzly bear fort. These people made a potent spirit out of molasses, yeast, berries, sugar, and flour. Americans and Europeans who came to the region in the 1890s as part of the Klondike Gold Rush began to trade for this liquor. They called it hoochinoo after the people who made it. Over time, this shortened to hooch, and the meaning extended. First, it came to mean any super strong, cheap, or illegal liquor made in Alaska or northwestern Canada. Today, it means any such alcohol, wherever it's made. Now we turn to Dutch Courage. This term dates back to the 17th and 18th centuries, when England and the Dutch Republic were at war. During this time of hostility, the British coined several phrases that used Dutch as an insult. There was Dutch bargain, meaning a deal you make when you're drunk and that won't hold water after you sober up. 
There was a Dutch concert, the din made when several songs are played at once. And there was Dutch feast, meaning a party where the host gets drunk well before the guests do. And then there's Dutch courage, also known as courage that's gained by downing a big slug of alcohol, not true courage at all. The phrase can mean not just false courage, but also alcohol itself. For example, if you were anxious about asking someone on a date, you could have a tipple of Dutch courage to try to calm your nerves. You'll notice that several of these derisive phrases allude to the drinking habits of the Dutch, which at the time were believed to be excessive. Now, this probably wasn't true and was just a case of viewing foreigners in a negative light. Tipple, by the way, means either a drink of alcohol or the act of drinking itself. It has the sense of drinking tiny amounts almost continuously. Imagine someone who carries a flask of whiskey in a jacket pocket and secretly takes small sips all day long. They would be a tippler and they would be tippling. And by the way, just so you don't get confused, a tippler is also a type of pigeon specifically bred for endurance flying. The original tippler was a cross between a French cumulate and an Indian high flyer. In contests, tipplers have stayed aloft for up to 20 hours. Okay, but back to drinking. If someone is tippling, hopefully they're not drinking the hard stuff. That phrase refers to drinks with a high alcohol content like rum, vodka, and tequila. In contrast, drinks with a lower alcohol content include beer, wine, and hard cider. And by the way, there are several reasons why hard alcohol is called hard. One of them is that hard used to mean harsh and unpleasant. In the 1500s, people started to call sharp, acidic wines hard wines for this reason. The name stuck, and it evolved over time to mean any drink with a high percentage of alcohol by volume. Finally, let's talk about one other fun term, nipperkin. A nipperkin is a small container used to measure alcohol. Over time, the word also came to mean the amount of alcohol itself, as in, I'll have a nipperkin of grog. The origin of this word is uncertain, but we believe it came from the Dutch nippen, meaning to sip, paired with kin, a suffix added to words to give them a diminutive sense. So nipper plus kin would mean a sip that is tiny. This sense is still used today when we talk about having a nip. That means we're having a wee sip of alcohol, perhaps a teeny sip of Bailey's Irish cream before heading to bed. And remember, listeners, that alcohol is only for people 21 and over, and that all of us should practice drinking in moderation. And until next time, cheers. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as dragonflyedit. Next, I have a voicemail from a listener commenting on the pronunciation episode we did a few weeks back. Hi, Graham Girl. Brad Pettit here. I live in Illinois, and I just listened to the lady who called in about how she learned to pronounce by reading and so not by hearing, and so sometimes she would mispronounce words. Well, when I was a kid, I read Peanuts, and there was a whole series of panels about how Snoopy buried Linus's blanket. And I would read the word Barry, B-U-R-Y, as bury. And I showed my mom, and she said, oh, the word's not bury, it's bury. So, of course, I had to go back and read them all again with bury in my head instead of bury. Love the podcast. Take care. Thank you. 
The question I get asked most frequently about the word however is whether it's okay to use however at the beginning of a sentence. And the answer is yes. It's fine to start a sentence with however. You just need to know when to use a comma and when to use a semicolon. The comma is important because however is a conjunctive adverb that can be used in two different ways. It can join main clauses and it can modify a clause. If you use however at the beginning of a sentence and don't insert a comma, however means in whatever manner, to whatever extent, or no matter how. For instance, Winston Churchill said, however beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally look at the results. And for those of you who like more modern examples, on the TV show Supergirl, while talking about a worldwide earthquake, Quarrel Docks said, However you choose to describe this event, one thing is absolutely certain. We have a major crisis on our hands. In both those cases, however, isn't playing the role of a conjunction. It's not joining anything to anything else. It means no matter how. However you describe this and no matter how you describe this mean the same thing. I don't think anyone has ever disputed starting a sentence with however when it's used that way. On the other hand, Strunk and White did say in their book, The Elements of Style, that you shouldn't start a sentence with however when you mean nevertheless or but. They're referring to sentences such as this one from Nicholas Nickleby by Charles Dickens. It's a great deal easier to go downhill than up. However, they kept on with unabated perseverance. And this more modern example from the 2009 Star Trek movie in which Spock says, I intend to assist in the effort to re-establish communication with Starfleet. However, if crew morale is better served by my roaming the halls weeping, I will gladly defer to your medical expertise. In these examples, however is acting as a connector, is providing a transition from the previous sentence to the next sentence. I know many of you revere Strunk and White, but this is one instance in which nearly all modern style guides have decided that the classic advice is unreasonable. Nearly all modern style guides don't call starting a sentence with however an error. Here's why. When you put a comma after however at the beginning of the sentence, everyone knows it means nevertheless. There's no reason to outlaw a perfectly reasonable use of the word when you can solve the problem with a comma. Some writers have even gone so far as to say it's preferable to start sentences with however instead of burying the word in the middle of a sentence, because putting it at the beginning makes the connection between sentences more clear, and therefore makes the text easier to scan. And here's something that may surprise you even more. Modern sources such as the Chicago Manual of Style and Garner's Modern English Usage say that although it isn't wrong to start a sentence with however, it's usually better to start a sentence with the word but. Yes, many of you were probably also taught that it's wrong to start a sentence with a conjunction such as and and but, but that's a myth too. After saying it's not an error to start a sentence with however, Chicago goes on to add, however is more ponderous and has less impact than the simple but. And Garner's sentiment is also that it's more effective to start a sentence with but or yet than however. They would probably prefer it if Spock told Bones, I intend to assist in the effort to reestablish communication with Starfleet, but if crew morale is better served by my roaming the halls weeping, I will gladly defer to your medical expertise. 
On the other hand, you also have to consider the style, and you could argue that however is a better fit for a character such as Spock precisely because it sounds more ponderous. Even though it's not wrong to start a sentence with however, sometimes it's still a good idea to avoid it because a lot of people think it's wrong. I don't advise starting a sentence with however in a cover letter for a job application, for example. You don't want your resume to get dumped because someone thinks you've made a mistake when you really haven't. If you want to avoid starting a sentence with however, it's it's not hard to do. Just grab a semicolon and use it to connect your two main clauses. What I mean is that instead of putting a period at the end of the sentence before the however, put a semicolon there instead. For example, let's take this sentence from Robert Piercing's introduction to the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. What follows is based on actual occurrences, period. However, comma, it should in no way be associated with that great body of factual information relating to Orthodox Zen Buddhist practice. He just as easily could have put a semicolon in place of the period and written what follows is based on actual occurrences, semicolon, However, comma, it should in no way, dot, dot, dot. And voila, with the semicolon, you no longer have a however at the beginning of a sentence. You put a semicolon before other conjunctive adverbs when they connect main clauses, too. For example, you put a semicolon before the words consequently, moreover, nevertheless, still, and therefore, in similar sentences. And they'd each be followed by a comma, too. It rained, semicolon. Consequently, comma, the party was canceled. I love marshmallows, semicolon. Therefore, comma, I love s'mores. You can also bury a however that means nevertheless in the middle of a sentence. You might do this to avoid using it at the beginning when you're insecure about your audience, or you might do it because it makes sense with the rhythm of your sentence. Garner and Chicago both say using however is a good way to add emphasis to the part that comes next. For example, Dickens buried the however in this sentence from Nicholas Nickleby. Love, however, is very materially assisted by a warm and active imagination. When you put however in the middle of a sentence like this, it should be surrounded by commas. Here's another example. In Breakfast of Champions, Kurt Vonnegut wrote, The chief weapon of sea pirates, comma, however, comma, was their capacity to astonish. Nobody else could believe until it was too late how heartless and greedy they were. Again, put a comma before and after, however, when you use it in the middle of a sentence this way. This is one area where people get confused because sometimes you need a semicolon before however in the middle of a long sentence, and sometimes you need a comma before however in the middle of a long sentence. Just remember that you only use the semicolon when you're joining two main clauses and the however just happens to be in the way, shouting, nevertheless! As I said in the episode on semicolons, think of a semicolon as a sentence splicer. It splices together two main clauses. So remember, don't let anyone tell you that it's wrong to start a sentence with however. And it's often more effective to use the simpler word, but. On the other hand, it might be a good idea to avoid the practice if you're applying for a job, since a lot of people mistakenly believe it's wrong. Mind your commas and semicolons, and don't use any punctuation after however when you use it to mean in whatever manner, to whatever extent, or no matter how. Finally, I have a familect story from Marge. Hi, Ms. Hogarty. Uh, this is Marge. Uh, my family story of a word is the word famished, 
My son, when he was in fourth grade, was going through his flipping cards uh, vocabulary, and the word came up famished, and he pronounced it famished. And famished is actually a Yiddish word, meaning I'm a little bit uncertain. I'm a little bit crazy. So every time we get hungry, we say we're a little famished. And that's the story. Hope you can use it. Bye now. Thanks, Marge. If you want to call with the story of your family act, a word your family and only your family uses, you can leave a voicemail at 833214-GIRL, and I might play it on the show. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sims, and my editor, Adam Cecil. Our operations and editorial manager is Michelle Margulis. Our assistant manager is Emily Miller, and our marketing publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. Follow Grammar Girl on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.